We're going to be in Psalm 24 this morning. We'll be looking to jump back into the book of Joshua next week, so look uh, forward to that. But this morning, I want to spend some time in another psalm. We've had a little bit of a stretch here, but Psalm 24. And if you go to Psalm 24, um, one of the things that came up as was working through this psalm, this idea of the king of glories, which we'll see, is a game that a lot of us, if not most of us, played growing up called King of the Hill. Did anyone pray, play King of the Hill growing up? Yeah. Anyone understand the basic rules of the game? Anyone want to quickly explain that for me? Anybody? Katie? Okay. As in most games, yes, the objective is to win. Yes, you can push people, throw people, any way to be at the top of your metaphorical or actual hill of sorts. Right? There's a hill. Someone, only one, can be at the top of it, and you have to do whatever you can to make sure that you are that person, right? And so this is a game that we play as, a, as children, but it's a game that's al also worked itself out in history. That often in history there has been a king or queen of the hill or the world or the country. And we, so we've seen this, right? You can think of the Persian Empire. Some of you might be familiar with the name Cyrus the Great. He's in our Bibles. Right? His kingdom stretched from Iran into Central Asia and Egypt. You might think of the Han Dynasty. It was established in 206 BC, and it lasted for more than 400 years. It expanded from China into Vietnam and Korea. You might even think of the British Empire. Right? Early in the 20th century, this country, this empire, comprised of nearly a quarter of the planet. Many of the territories it colonized have since gained independence, but it demonstrates how powerful at one point they were. But the commonality as you work through history, as you see king, queen, country come into power, is eventually what? They go out of power. They fall. That they are not king or queen forever. But as we come to Psalm 24, we come to a king who sits on a hill much greater than any of these, but also a king who cannot actually be toppled from his hill, a king whose reign will never end. And the wonder of this psalm as we read it and as we learn is that this king, who we learn is the king of glories, he wants a relationship with us. He wants us to join him on that holy hill. And so the call for us today as we work through Psalm 24 is to rightly draw near to the king of glories, to God, and to joyfully receive him as he draws near to us. So let's read Psalm 24, verses 1 through 10. This is the word of the Lord. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob, Selah. 
Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord strong and mighty. The Lord mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the King of glory may come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Selah. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word, praying that you'd give us ears to hear what you were saying, that I would decrease and that Christ would increase. In your name we pray, amen. So Psalm 24 is what is known as an entrance liturgy. It's a procession song. It was sung by Israel perhaps as the Ark of the Covenant, which contained the presence of God, was brought into the temple. Its origins are with King David. He wrote this song. And there's speculation on the occasion of his writing of it. It could have been 2 Samuel 6, where David is finally able to see the ark of God brought into the city of Jerusalem. Others think it could have been sung at the dedication of the temple. So David would have known about that by prophecy, that it would be built by Solomon, his son. Either way, the purpose of this psalm is clear. This procession puts on display the rightful king of everything. It invites us to be in awe of the king of glories, but it also invites us to approach him rightly and to do that joyfully to receive him as he draws near to us. And so as we walk through the text, there's going to be three movements we'll follow. Verses 1 to 2, God's sovereign patent. Verses 3 to 6, approach God with a holy hygiene. And then verses 7 to 10, receive the king of glory with joyful worship. So verses 1 to 2, God's sovereign patent. Look at verses 1 again. The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. This procession song begins with an exclamation point. Everything in the earth and all that is contained in it belong to God. Every particle, every atom, everything you can see with your eyes or cannot see, all of it, including us, belong to God. And this is not a claim made unfounded. Verse 2 says that. He has founded it upon the seas. He has established it upon the rivers. God owns it all because he made it all. He founded it. Some of you might be familiar with what a patent is, right? And a patent is an exclusive right granted for an invention, which is a product or a process. An example of this would be the song, Ice Ice Baby. Ice Ice Baby, Vanilla Ice? No? Again, the 90s, perfection. Ice Ice Baby, there you go, there you go. But you might be familiar with the bass line, right? But you might have been familiar with that. Why? Because they stole it from Queen, right? That bass line did not belong to Vanilla Ice. It was one utilized before in the song Under Pressure, right? And so as the story goes, Vanilla Ice would have to pay $4 million in royalties to Queen for publishing rights of the bass line used in Ice Ice Baby. And so that's how a patent works. It belongs to you, so you get to decide how it's utilized in the world. And if that's true, 
then we have to realize that God has the most unique, exclusive patent of all time, right? Creation, life itself. So God's claim to ownership of the world is absolutely correct because he rightfully made it. He owns it all. And so, firstly, if God holds this patent to life, to us, and, has, and that means exclusive rights, that means we are subject to him. That means all of creation is at God's beck and call and that we are meant to live for God. The Westminster Confession is a series of questions and answers. You ask a question, there's an answer. In the first question, we read, what is the chief end of man? All right, shout out to Sarah. And I saw Zorabel whispering it. Yes, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. We have a purpose because we belong to God. As Christians, as believers, we understand that this means we do all things for his glory. Whether we eat, we sleep, how we live is informed by our creator because he has designed us. Right? As with every patent, an adventurous creation is made with and for a purpose. It's the same with us and God. He has designed us to live and to move a certain way. That's why we go to his word, to hear him, to, to read of the ways he's designed and created us to be. He speaks clearly to his creation there. We find what we need for life and godliness in his word, for godly living. If our designer has given us a purpose, he has not left us in the dark. He's given us a way to know what he has for us in this life. And in being made and owned by God, we can also see that we are to submit every aspect of our life. Our marriages, our parenting, our finances, our friendships. The way we work is shaped by him. We will move differently in every area of life when we recognize it isn't ours to begin with. One of the things I've learned with having a baby is that babies have amazing grip. It's Almost, like it's impossible to get him to open up his hands. But that's how we are with life. It's impossible. If we want to hold on to something, we will not let go unless we deem it is necessary and right. And we do that with our relationships, with our finances. We will clench our hands. But what God is showing us here is, no, 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 you were meant to open your hands to him. Allow him to decide what he wants with our lives, because it's his to begin with. Everything that we say is ours is not actually ours. It belongs to God. He wants us to loosen our grips and ask him what he wants from us. But we can also be encouraged because if it is God who has founded everything and is the rightful king, sovereign over it all, it means that we don't have to live in the anxiety the world walks in. So I don't know what's bothering you right now. I don't know what you walk through the doors of this church with on your mind or that's causing your heart to be heavy. But this is a reminder that God is in control. Yes, the changes in your life have been shattering. Yes, the disappointments, they keep on coming. Bills are not being paid. And stress is the closest emotion to you right now. It's all you feel. It's a humming in the background. But this psalm is a reminder that God is in control. 
And sometimes that's all you can actually lean on. Sometimes it's all you have. That knowledge that God is in control. And that doesn't mean that we just sit by and do nothing about our circumstances, but it does mean that we can still live for God with the knowledge that he is all-powerful, in control, and that the end is clear. And so these first two verses are meant to put us in awe as they properly shape the way we see God. But a natural question that maybe comes up as you, you read these verses is, how can someone even get close to a God who's like this? Is there a way? And this is the same question asked by David. Look at verse 3 with me. Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? Who shall stand in his holy place? This question is meant to first give us pause. Who is worthy to be in God's presence? But second, the question is meant to be an invitation because there is a right way to approach God. So even if you haven't watched the Marvel movies, you might be familiar with Thor, right, from Norse mythology, and the weapon he carries, Molnir, right? But there are certain conditions required to wield his mighty hammer. In the movies, what you find in Age of Ultron is that the other Avengers, the other heroes, they try to pick up his hammer, and none of them can do it. None of, they all try to pick it up, and they can't do it. Captain America goes over, and he's able to slightly budge the hammer, but then doesn't pick it up. Well, several movies later, in a scene near the end of the last of this uh, movie series, Endgame, they're fighting the big baddie, Thor is on the ground, he's hurt, he's about to be finished by Thanos, and a hammer comes flying by, hitting Thanos in the face, and lands in the hand of Captain America. And Thor yells out, does anyone remember if you watched it? I knew it. I knew it. <laughs> right, he knew that this guy would meet the requirements to wield his mighty hammer. And does anybody know what's required to hold the hammer of Mjolnir? Anyone? No? Yes, to be pure of heart. To hold his hammer, you had to be pure in heart. That was the condition. Not how strong you were, not how clever you were, to be pure of heart. And as you come to the psalm, we learn it's the same thing for us, to approach God. That what is required for those who ascend God's holy hill? They must practice a holy hygiene. Be of clean hands and pure in heart not turning to emptiness or living a life of lies. Verse 4, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false, does not swear deceitfully. And this should be an unsurprising passage for us. Think of Matthew chapter 5, verse 8. Blessed are the, anybody? Pure in heart, for they shall see God. Hebrews 12, 14, strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. This is unsurprising that we'd be called to have clean hands. And the meaning of this is that we are innocent of wrongdoing. But even when we commit wrongs, we are quick to seek forgiveness towards God or those you sinned against. To be clean of hands means to be free from Blood and violence, bribery, fraud, unjust gain, 
wrongdoing of any kind towards God or your brother and sister. That your hands are instruments and tools for the Lord, not for you. So questions to ask. Have you loved God? Have you loved neighbor? Are you cheating your employer? Are you tearing those around you, maybe not with your fists, less acceptable these days, but with your words, or better yet, with your warrior fingers on the keyboard? To be clean is to love the Lord and then love your neighbor, this golden rule. And so ask yourself, have, you, have your hands been used for God or have they been bloodied by your selfishness? And the pure heart is meant to drive these actions, this outward work. Because Jesus can smell a fake. He knows who does the work of someone with clean hands out of the work done in them through Jesus or out of selfish gain. The Pharisees, if you remember in Luke chapter 11, were astonished that Jesus didn't do the outward work of washing his hands before eating. Jesus responds in verse 39. He says, now, you Pharisees, you cleansed the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. It's a reminder for us that we are not saved by works, what we do, but we are saved for those good works. That what we do in the Christian life is out of the life that's given to us through Jesus. Then we see that we're called to not lift up our souls to what is false. Another way of thinking about this is don't lift up your soul to emptiness. Right? Sometimes we'll ask the question, who do you look up to? Right? We understand that looking up to somebody means to hold them in reverence, an ideal, a role model. They're an example, and so we look up to see them. And what we're being told here is not to let anyone ultimately fill that place in your life. Whether it's a person or a thing, whether it's a, a job, whether it's adoration, achievement, do not ultimately look up to what is empty. Instead, look up to God. Don't swear deceitfully. Don't live a life of lies. Don't live your truth. Don't live their truth. Live God's truth. In totality, verse 4 is pointing us to loyalty to the Lord in heart and in life. Singular devotion to him in every way. And that person we read in verse 5, he will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. We're told that you will enjoy the benefits of the promises of God as you live pure in heart and with clean hands. That the status of God's favored people is given to those who follow him. That we receive righteousness. And this righteousness is vindication. In the case of a pilgrim who would approach the temple, they would need to receive a declaration of God's vindication by a judge. And that would give them permission to enter into God's presence. What this verse is doing is emphasizing that it is God who gives us that vindication. That God, our Savior, is who can grant us what we most need. It's not earned by faultless 
compliance to an external law, but given directly by God himself. What allows us to see God is God's vindication of us. That's really important in a world that asks us to strive to earn its vindication, that demands for us to live by its standards, its rules, its ways. God is saying, no, no, you only need my vindication. That's all you need to be righteous. You don't need the world, the workplace, the people around you to tell you this is what it means to be vindicated. I have given you vindication. And this comes, in verse 6, to such the generation of those who seek him, who seek the face of the God of Jacob. This is more than moral living. This is holy pursuit of God. Seeking God isn't a one-and-done decision where you've done it and you're good for the rest of your life. You can kind of just move on to the next chapter. No, no, this is a daily decision enveloped in a transformed life that is consistently going after God. Not saying that you will not trip, fall, but it's that consistency of going after God at the pace he's given you. In many ways, the psalm can be summarized in what we read and what James teaches us in James chapter 4. Verse 7, verse 8. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil. Keep your hands clean. Be pure of heart. Don't lift up to emptiness. Don't lift up your soul to things that will not give you what you need. Resist the devil. He will flee from you. Draw near to God. He will draw near to you. This drawing near is what we see in verses 7 to 10. As we draw near to God, he joyfully comes to us and expects us to joyfully receive him. So let's read verses 7 to 10. Lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is the king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty, the Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. You can imagine David in 2 Samuel chapter 6. Early in the chapter, they seek to bring the Ark of the Covenant finally into the city of Jerusalem where it belongs. But in going to the city of Jerusalem, Uzzah touches the Ark of the Covenant and is struck dead in that moment. And so for a period of time, they don't bring the ark into the city of Jerusalem because they are fearful of the Lord. But not too long afterwards, David hears news that the ark is blessing the people and takes this as a sign that they can finally bring the ark where it belongs. And when they finally bring the ark into the city, we read that David dances. He sings. He's joyful. He's excited that God He's finally coming into his city. David is our example of what it means to receive the Lord. As we open the gates of our own hearts and lives to him, we are to receive him joyfully. But as we learn in 2 Samuel chapter 6, this is only done when we approach God rightly. 
the presence of God could not be brought into Jerusalem because Uzzah had wrongly, though well-intentioned, approached God. And we recognize that like Uzzah, all of us are in the same circumstance as him, of being unable to approach God the way we need to, with clean hands and pure hearts. We are in danger of our sin keeping us from the presence of God. Because though God does hold the sovereign patent, he is the rightful king of everything, there is another who holds claim to us. Both sin and Satan hold us in their clutches, in bondage, in slavery. So though we should give our lives to the king of glories, our sin prevents us. We say no, no thank you. We are held hostage both by our own selfishness and by the desires of Satan. One who is seeking the rights of our life to claim us forever. Sin means that no matter how often we wash our hands, it's like trying to remove permanent ink, right? There's always a little bit left that you have to try to get rid of. That our hearts are forever stained by the effects of our ongoing sin, that we are blind to God and dead in our sins, unable to approach him rightly. Interestingly, Jerusalem, the people of Israel, would, they would sing this song on Sunday. They would sing, lift up your heads, O gates. Be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. They would ask that question, who is this king of glory? The Lord strong and mighty, the Lord mighty in battle. But I don't think as they sung this again and again over hundreds of years that they would realize as they sang this song that one day in a not so distant future that that king, the king they are singing to, would ride on a donkey into that same city of Jerusalem. In Luke chapter 21, verse 10, we read that when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? They would ask the same question, not realizing that this was the king of glory. Though our sin has opened a chasm between us and God, God sends his son to close that. The king of glory comes to deal with the permanent stain of our hands and hearts because he comes with hands unmarked and a heart unstained. He comes as one who is worthy to stand on the holy hill. He is vindicated by his own righteousness. He is the king of glory. And though some during Jesus' entry would exclaim, Hosanna, the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Jesus would only days later be raised up on a different hill, crucified an innocent man killed. But this is for our good, that Jesus would be killed for our sins. His blood shed that we might be washed clean. His death would be the price God would pay to rightfully gain exclusivity of you, his sons and daughters. The blood of 
Jesus has become the means of cleansing and payment for our sins, that we can be God's people. The coming of Jesus' life, his death, his resurrection, are an invitation to open up our gates, the gates of our hearts, and to joyfully receive Christ. Because Jesus climbs the hill on our behalf. He makes the way. In fact, he comes back down and puts you on his back and climbs back up. This ruler is built a little bit different than the kings and queens of this world. His kingship is final, and he also asks us to join him as co-heirs. If you don't know this king, the call for you is to hear this as an invitation to live under his good reign. That the God who holds the sovereign patent to all of life He wants to draw near to you. But you must rightly draw near to him, and you can do that through his son, Christ. For us, church, the, I think, reminder here is that we are the temple. We are the body. And so as that ark comes into the city of Jerusalem, God's presence fills his people. That we, as we come together, are to joyfully receive God as he inhabits, as he dwells with us. 1 Corinthians 6, 19 says, Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. Both individually and corporately, we belong totally and completely to God. And so we're called to glorify him and receive his presence joyfully. George Weasel, a hymnist, wrote a song in light of this psalm. It reads, lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. Behold, the king of glory waits. The king of kings is drawing near. The savior of the world is here. Life and salvation he doth bring Wherefore, rejoice and gladly sing. Lift up your heads, ye mighty gates. Behold, the king of glory waits. The king of kings is drawing near. The savior of the world is here. Life and salvation he doth bring. Wherefore, rejoice and gladly sing. This song is a reminder that God, who rules it all, desires to share that with us. He wants us to join him. And so the call is to trust in his son Christ that we might be with God forever, to enjoy him forever as his people, as co-heirs forever. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this song, this song of praise, this song that reminds that puts us in awe of who you are, reminds us of the holiness and the the gravity of God, and yet also invites us to be with you, to enjoy you, to know you, to join Christ on that holy hill, to know that we are not vindicated by our own righteousness, but our vindication comes from the righteousness of Christ. 
and that through him we can be on that holy hill enjoying the presence of God forever. Lord, may we know that deeply today. In your name we pray. Amen.